interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Before I read John 5, 16 to 30, um, I want to add uh, this word to John 3. Someone passed me a written question. If you look at John 3, in the NIV, Jesus' words continue from 16 to 21, judging by the quotation marks. But this uh, brother says, In my experience, I have never seen a red-letter edition of the Bible that did not include John's text from 3.16 to the end of the chapter as Jesus speaking. Actually, it's to the end of 3.21, rather than the end of the chapter, because after that, it's clearly narrative. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out and so on. So the the disputed bit is is 16 to uh, 21. I recognize that all scripture is God-inspired, so that every word is valuable for us. But many people place more importance on what Jesus says in the New Testament. Many years ago, I read a commentary by Kenneth Wiest where uh, he maintained that starting with 3.16, Jesus is no longer speaking, but it is God inspiring John in his writing. Uh, Would I please uh, comment on this? Uh, The short answer is I don't know, and I'm not sure. Uh, But there's always a longer answer after that, isn't there? Um, The problem is that in both Greek and Hebrew, there was no um, um, uh, quotation mark system that that closed off a, a closing quotation. Um, so that I, in one or two places you're left guessing where the words of the, the person who's speaking end and the words of the person who's reporting the speech begin. You see, usually it's pretty obvious just from the context, but every once in a while you stumble across that kind of thing. Uh, there's a wonderful passage like that in Paul, in, in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul is um, it, it gets in his Ausa Einand of his confrontation with Peter. And, and he says, I said to Peter in front of them all. And then he gives you verse 14. And then you've got 15 to 21 after that. Now, is that 15 to 21 what Paul also said on that occasion or not? And the short answer is, I don't know. But again, something a little longer can be said. You see, because there is no way on that occasion that all that Peter said finished at verse 14. There's no way. The, the occasion itself would have demanded a longer theological response, do you see? And, and whether or not then the next verses are more or less a quotation of what Peter actually said on that occasion, or a theological summary of the whole debate that took quite some time on that occasion, it really doesn't make a lot of difference in terms of the theology of the event, and whether or not exactly those words or something else were said on the occasion makes no, no difference in the argument. So also here, it is difficult to be absolutely certain if um, th- there's some writers who say very dogmatically that there's no way that, uh, that, that, that Jesus actually said these words, and there are others who say equally dogmatically that he did. Um, the short answer is I don't know. Um, my guess is that this is meant to be a report of what Jesus said and that the quotation marks should end at verse 21 but that even if they're not, they're certainly what John understands to be the whole rationale of, 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 of the theology of Jesus as he's taught it all along and fits in with John's own developing explanation of the narrative as you go. 
um, e either either way, it still remains to be what God has disclosed. The only question is whether or not Jesus said these particular things on this particular occasion. And that's not something that I'm going to lose a lot of sleep over. It has to do with the different orthographical systems um, at, at the time. And, uh, and uh, a, a typical of a lot of translation principles, you, you do lose something in translation once in a while when you move from one, from one, um, from one uh, degree of specificity in one language to, to, uh, to another language. Which is merely a more sophisticated way of saying I don't know. Now, chapter 5, verses 16 to 30. Chapter 5, verses 16 to 30. Now, this passage has a few verses in it that are extremely tight. In other words, they're so compressed that they are not easy to understand when you're just reading them through. They have to be unpacked. So, if there are a few lines here that seem uh, more than usually obscure, um, hang on a bit. We will try to unpack the flow in a few minutes. This is set just after the healing at the pool of, the of Bethesda near the Sheep Gate. And, um, and in this connection, the man had not only been healed on the Sabbath, but had carried his mat home on the Sabbath. And we read, verse 16, So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I, too, am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Those of us from uh, certain uh, traditions recite Sunday by Sunday the words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What does that mean? Does God have a son? Uh, 
If the language is not literal, using sonship as we mean sonship when I say, I have a son and his name is Nicholas, what does it mean? What degree of metaphor is involved? Or what is the nature of the metaphor? In Hindu conceptions of God, Jesus is son of God, all right, but then again, so are all of us. There is nothing unique to his sonship. In street Muslim understandings of the Christian notion of son of God, that is the kind of notion that uh, many Muslims around the world who don't have advanced training would understand Christians to believe. God copulated with Mary to produce Jesus, and that's the Trinity. That is God, Mary, and Jesus. They think the idea grotesque. And they are right. It's also not what Christians believe. Which means it becomes extremely important, if you're talking about Jesus, the Son of God, in a Muslim context, to say what you do mean. Otherwise, you are causing huge umbrage. From their perspective, this is such a massive demeaning of God that it is transgressing the borders of blasphemy to think that God, Allah, the great, compassionate, sovereign God, would be copulating with a woman. It's grotesque. And of course, they're right. It is grotesque. It's also not what the Bible says. But then when we start pressing even within Scripture, we discover that the notion of sonship is not univocal. It depends on the context. Thus you come to a passage like um, Exodus 4. And um, God says through Moses to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say, let my son go that he may worship me. So, Israel is God's son. And then later on, the prophet Hosea says, out of Egypt have I called my son. Again, referring to Egypt, to, to Israel. Which is, interestingly enough, picked up and applied to Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. That's another question we'll come to. My point is that quite clearly, if Israel is God's son, it's got nothing to do with copulation. Nor is it sonship in, in the merely physical genetic sense that, that whereby Nicholas is my son. And then, in the first part of Job, certain angels are referred to as the sons of God. Both good and evil angels. And Satan is among them. And he shows up before God. And he's called one of the sons of God. And then Jesus insists that he's the son, whereas Paul writes that Christians are sons of God by adoption. Then there are clearly um, um, character references. For example, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's what the Greek literally has, not children of God, sons of God. That's what the text says. 
the idea, apparently, is that God is the supreme peacemaker. And if, in fact, we make peace, then so far also are we acting like God, so we must belong to his family. Or again, that's in Matthew 5, a little farther on. We are to love our enemies because God sends his son and his reign upon the just and upon the unjust. So that if we just love our, our friends, then we're acting like any pagan. If we're going to act like God, then we, we, we must show some magnanimity to others who are not our friends. And thus we will show ourselves to be, again the same expression, sons of God. We're acting like God. What's going on? So before we come to grips with this sort of passage, we have to have some sort of understanding of where this Son of God language comes from. It has to do what I said earlier, too, about, about, about the importance of immediate context. A lot of expressions are not, uh, are, are not technical terms that always have exactly the same force, uh, always have the same univocal meaning, but, 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 but context is very important. Nevertheless, it's useful in this frame of reference to recognize a social factor that makes a huge difference. Let me try something here. All of you who vocationally are doing what your parents did at this stage in their lives. Put up your hands. Look around, folks. I see maybe five, six hands. I don't know what, how many there are here, 140, 150, so maybe 4%, something like that. Whereas you see, in a pre-industrial, pre-technology age, 95, 98, 99% of boys ended up doing what their fathers did. Girls ended up doing what their mothers did. Your father's a farmer, you become a farmer. Your father's a baker, you become a baker. It's taken the industrial revolution and the rise of capital and mobility in the Western world and uh, mass forms of education formation and all this sort of thing to produce the kind of flexibility that we have in our world, you see? And out of this then come a whole array of Semitic idioms that seem a little strange to us. So someone is called the son of Belial, which means the son of worthlessness. Where does that come from? Well, the idea, of course, is that... Um, this person is so utterly worthless that the only explanation is that he is the child of worthlessness personified. It's not literally an insult to your parent. It's really an insult to you. Do, 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 do you see? It's, it's this genetic family thing. You get it in the Arab world sometimes on the mother's side. So Hussein promised us the mother of all wars. Now, didn't manage to give it, but that's what he, what he promised you, you. You see, it's the same sort of family relatedness that is, 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 uh, is at stake. And Jesus himself uses that language, doesn't he? The, the idea, you see, is that, um, is that a boy, for example, brought up in the family, not only learns to, to read and write in the family, but he learns the family trade. If your name is Stradivarius, you learn all about violins. That's the way it is. You learn how to choose the wood, how to cut the wood, how to make the glue, and so on and so on. You, you make violins. You learn the entire trade because your name is Stradivarius and your father taught you everything. And, and, um, and, 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 and so your, your father is establishing not merely your genes, and then he goes off to work on the commuter train into the big city and shows up late at night. And, and so he actually stamps your character. He teaches you your trade. He teaches you your identity. That, that's, that's bound up with your whole identity. So Jesus then can come along and address some of his opponents in John chapter 8, which we're not going to look at. 
And, and, and he asks them the question, you, you know, whose children are you? And they well, we're, your father, our father is Abraham. Oh, no, no, he's not, Jesus says. And Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And your father Abraham didn't try and kill anybody. You're trying to kill me. Abraham's not your father. Well, then we're really children of God. God is our father. Oh, no, no, that can't be because God knows who I am. God testifies to me. No, no, you're of your father. You're, you're of your father, all right. You're of your father, the devil. And the lusts of your father, you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and you're trying to kill me. He was a liar from the beginning. You're telling the untruth about me. No, no, you see, Jesus is not denying that they are physically descendant from Abraham. Nor, nor is he trying to say that the devil copulated with somebody or other to produce them either. He is merely saying that in terms of their actions on this particular occasion, they are so much acting like the devil himself would that the only explanation is that they're sons of the devil himself. So sometimes, likewise, sons of God think. has nothing to do with regeneration. has nothing to do with the second person of the Trinity. In many, many passages, it has to do merely with function. If you're a peacemaker, then you're acting like God. So, so far, also are you a son of God. Do, do, do you see? It's a functional category. Now, that's not the only usage, because there are other usages that tie Jesus more immediately to God. I understand that. But you must understand that this is the range of expressions that you find connected with this son of language in Scripture and begin to be uh, sensitive to the different nuances and the different contexts before you, you jump too far into a, into a particular um, uh, line of interpretation. So here, what I want to suggest is that... Um, the healing in chapter 5 sets off a whole exchange. And in this exchange, we are then told four things of what it means to confess Jesus as the Son of God. And if we understand these things, in fact, not only will we understand a fair bit of about how our Bibles are put together, we'll understand some remarkable things about Jesus himself. In the preceding exchange, what starts off starts off as a healing miracle, becomes a Sabbath controversy because Jesus not only heals on the Sabbath, but he also tells the man to take up his mat and go home. And now the controversy starts, verse 16, and we come to these four things. Number one, the son insists he has the right to do what the father does. The son insists he has the right to do what the Father does. In particular, like the Father, the Son works on the Sabbath. Verses 16 to 18. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, you need to know something of the background of Sabbath controversies at the time. Jesus could have answered in a lot of different ways. The Old Testament law, after all, forbids your regular work on the Sabbath. You're supposed to reserve the day unto the Lord. But even on the kindest interpretation, Jesus was not a medical officer who was out to earn a little extra money on the sly by healing this chap on the Sabbath so he could fill his pockets with a, a little extra cash, when he could have jolly well waited till the next day to heal him then. You, you see, in that sense, the charge against Jesus didn't make a lot of sense. And moreover, when the fellow was 
rolling up his mat and putting on his shoulder and going home, then there was a sense in which he wasn't a professional mat carrier, earning money by carrying mats. I mean, it's very difficult to see just on the basis of Old Testament law how either of them was doing anything remarkably evil, you do see. The trouble is that in order to answer the questions, what really is prohibited work, by this stage, the Jews had come up with 39 categories of prohibited work. And this included carrying anything above your shoulder. So if the man wrapped it up and put it on his shoulder, then, then, then clearly he was breaking the Sabbath. He was working. It included not carrying anything from one domicile to another. You, you can understand the mentality that went into this. Supposing you're not supposed to work. Is carrying anything work? Well, how about your toothbrush? Is that work? Or carrying something from the stove to the table. Is that work? So, so the mentality went, well, let's, let's put a fence around Torah to make this clear. If you carry something above your shoulder height, then it's probably because you're actually trying to get some work done. Do you, do you see? Or if you carry something from one domicile to another, then it's as if you're maybe carrying something to the job, maybe to sell it or something. You're getting a little extra work in on the sly. So they had these rules put into place to make sure that you weren't actually breaking down the, the fundamental prohibition of work on the Sabbath. Do you see? So from that point of view, Jesus was uh, w was healing somebody. But worse, this chap was carrying something from this side to another side, breaking the domicile rule, and something on his shoulder, which which was breaking the above your shoulder rule. Do, 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 do you see? So Jesus could have answered by simply questioning their halakot, their rules of conduct in the light of the law, and got a nice discussion going, and nobody would have been offended. There would have been a hot debate, but but nobody would have been offended. But instead, what he does is up the ante. He turns it instead into a Christological debate. Now the issue is not just Sabbath, but it's who Jesus is. What he says is not, hey, what I'm doing is not wrong. How dare you criticize me? It's your own rules that are far narrower than what Scripture is. Back off. You see, he could have said that, and they might not have liked it, but they wouldn't have accused him of blasphemy. Instead, what he says is, my father works on the Sabbath. So do I. Now, that reflects another whole debate that was going on in Jewish circles at this time. The question was this. Does God Almighty keep the Sabbath? And one group said, of course he doesn't. Because God upholds everything by his powerful word. If, if he stopped his providential work, on the Sabbath, then the whole universe crumbles or all sorts of bad things happen or who knows what disarray is set into place. Of course God works on the Sabbath. But the other side said, and it was the side that became the majority and ultimately prevailed, the other side said, well, it's true that God keeps ruling things providentially, but he is so big that even when he's moving all the stars and the galaxies and let alone human beings or dust particles around, he's not raising anything above his shoulder. And he's certainly not carrying anything from one domicile to another because I mean, it's, it's all his. I mean, uh, in, in that sense, he's, he's, he's not working on the Sabbath. Do you, do you see? But, but clearly that sort of reasoning could only be applied to God. So now for Jesus to come along and say, well, my father works, you know, and so do I. 
means that Jesus, whatever he's done, that's good or bad or indifferent, is justifying what he's done on the same basis that God is justified. And the Jews recognize the problem. Hence verse 18. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, the, the, the Jews sometimes called God their father. Never, so far as our sources go, in the singular. We don't know of any Jew before Jesus who addressed God as my father. But sometimes they thought of God as our father or the like. But not in such a way as to make themselves equal with God. There are different ways of referring to God as our Father. When we say the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, we are not thereby saying, and God is our equal. But Jesus' argument here in this context, appealing to God as his Father in this sort of context, with this sort of subject, in effect was saying, I have the same exemptions made with respect to my conduct on the Sabbath as God Almighty does. Back off. And they rightly discerned that this was therefore a claim to something which they saw as blasphemy. In other words, the Son insists he has the right to do what the Father does. In particular, like the Father, the Son works on the Sabbath. He's made himself equal to God. From the point of view of his opponents, almost certainly they saw this as an implicit claim to die theism. That is, believing that there are two gods, one of them the Father and one of them Jesus. In other words, th th this would sound not only like blasphemy, it would sound like incipient polytheism. At least diatheism, two gods. But that's not what Jesus means either. Because Jesus never ever loses sight, even when he's making his most outrageous claims, of the fact that God is one. So what follows now in all that, 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 that ensues in the remaining verses is Jesus' particular justification of his claim that he's equal with God while still insisting on monotheism. In other words, what we find in the next verses is just what is meant by saying Jesus is the Son of God. What we find is a defense of the peculiarly Christian form of monotheism. So that Jesus is confessed as God, he's confessed as the Son of God, and yet there is but one God, even while he's comparing himself with his Father. In other words, the passage really becomes extraordinarily important for understanding what God is like. And that brings me now to the second point. The Son insists he is subordinate to the Father. But it is a uniquely defined subordination. The Son insists he is subordinate to the Father, but it is a uniquely defined subordination. Verses 19 to 23. 19a is in answer to the charge of verse 18. They have said that he is making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. You see, in this sense, he's not setting up some form of diatheism in which he's independent of God. There's one God over here, and now he comes along, and he's God number two, and they're both somehow sovereign and immaculate and omnipotent, and maybe even in competition. No, the son insists he is subordinate to the father. 
He can't do anything apart from the Father. The Son can do nothing by himself. That's what the text says. Moreover, this is not an isolated text in John's Gospel. We're all familiar with the texts that affirm Jesus' deity, like John 1.1 that we saw yesterday. Or you recall what is said at the end when Thomas bows before Jesus after the resurrection and says, My Lord and my God. Or where Jesus claims in John chapter 8, um, before Abraham was, I am. Or what he says to his followers in the farewell discourse, he who has seen me has seen the Father. We're familiar with those verses. But there's another array, this one, and then 5.30. By myself I can do nothing, I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Do you see the dependence? Or again, in chapter 8, verse 29. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Do you see? Again, a principial subordination. Or again, chapter 14, verse uh, 31. The world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. This is a functional subordination, and it never works the other way around. In other words, you never get the Son telling the Father what to do, and then the Father obeys. It's the Father who sends, the Father who gives, the Father who commissions, the Father who commands, and the Son who goes and who obeys, and who always does what the Father gives him to do, and so on. There is a functional subordination that works all through these passages. Even so, Although this is a way of insisting that Jesus is not another God, that he remains subordinate to his Father, even so, the fourth gospel is, 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 is structured to say that this subordination is remarkably strange. Look at the argument in 19b. Now, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what... Um, he, he can only do what he sees his father doing for, because, whatever the father does, the son also does. Now, that's remarkable. You, you see, according to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, if we're peacemakers, we're sons of God. Right? God is the supreme peacemaker, so if we're peacemakers, we're acting like God, and so, so we're, we're sons of God. But that doesn't mean that we're sons of God in every respect. For example, I've never made a universe. In that sense, I'm not the son of God. There's there certain things about God, which he has done, which he keeps doing, that I have never done. In that sense, I'm not like God. I'm different from God. So I'm not the son of God in that sense. But Jesus says, on the one hand, he always does what the Father wants him to do. He always says what the Father wants him to say. He always pleases the Father. He always obeys the commands of the Father. And on the other hand, he says, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And he means it in the most absolute way. And some of the ways in which it is meant are already tracked out by John's Gospel. What did we read in the opening verses of chapter 1 last night? He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This son has made everything. He's been God's own agent in creation. And then as we read on in these verses, does the father raise the dead on the last day? Yeah, well, the son does. 
There is nothing that the Father does that the Son doesn't do. Does the Father control everything, remain sovereignly, providentially in control? The New Testament insists on the same thing about Jesus. For example, in Hebrews chapter 1, which we looked at last night, we saw that he upholds all things by his powerful word. Everything that the Father does is somewhere assigned likewise to, to the Son. What do you do with that? You see, this is a uniquely informed subordination. No other son can make this sort of sweeping claim. You and I have never spoken and worlds have come into being. We do not create light and darkness. We do not raise the dead. We do not create life. We are not masters of our own fate. We are still less than providentially sovereign. In fact, look closely. This text is more stunning yet. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing for, because, whatever the father does, the son also does. In other words, Jesus grounds his functional subordination on his claim to coextensive action with God. And that makes his sonship unique. He grounds his functional subordination in his claim to coextensive action with God. And that makes his sonship unique. And that brings us to the second step in his argument. For, verse 20a, for the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Now, that's the way it works, ideally, in a handcraft society. Stradivarius Sr. is teaching Stradivarius Jr. to make violins. And Stradivarius Sr., if he's any sort of decent father at all, loves Stradivarius Jr. And he wants Stradivarius Jr. to carry on the whole tradition. So he shows him everything that he knows. You see? And likewise, the farmer wants the son to learn everything that he knows. So he teaches him the weather signs and what seed to put in and when to plow and when to harvest and what sort of tools to use and how to handle the animals and what weeds to take out. And everything that the father knows, he passes on to the son. He's not saying, I'll keep the little brat ignorant on this one. He'll never turn out quite as clever as I am in farming. No, the father loves the son and shows him all that he does, you see? So that's the analogy here. The father loves the son. There is a distinction in them at the personal level. This is the second time John has said the father loves the son. He has said as much in chapter 3, verse 35. There the father loves the son and has poured out the spirit on him without limit. Here the father loves the son and, 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 and uh, in consequence he shows him absolutely everything. And this son is capable of doing absolutely everything. Do you see? It is, it is this coextensive action that is a function of the father's love. And then, when John later goes on to talk about the son's love for the father, as he does in 1431, the son proves his love for the father in doing everything that the father gives him to do. Stradivarius Jr. says to Stradivarius Sr., he says, um, uh, oh, okay, okay, you obviously know all about the glues. I, 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 I will do the glues exactly the way you've always done the glues. And, and he does exactly what Stradivarius Sr. teaches him to do. Now, of course, the analogy is not perfect because it may be that eventually one of the Stradivarius Juniors will come along and think of an even better way of doing things. But when your father is God, it's not likely that you're going to think of a better way. And so Stradivarius Jr. comes along 
and does everything Stradivari Sr. says and shows his love by being filially responsive and obedient. That's what is said in chapter 14, verse 31. The world must know that I love my father and always do what he gives me to do. So the love of the father for the son is shown precisely in giving the son everything to do that the father does. And the love of the son is shown precisely in doing it all. All coextensive divine action. That is to say, whatever the father does, the son also does in this remarkable relationship of spectacular love. Now, there are two implications of this that are extremely important for our understanding of the gospel. They're huge implications. This means that the son, by his obedience, is acting in such a way that he is revealing the father. You see, if the father says and does certain things, and the son only says and does those things which the father gives him to do, then all that the, father, that the son does is revealing God. Do you want to know what God the father looks like? Study Jesus. In other words, the very obedience of the Son to the Father, the very commission of the Father to the Son, which is in the nexus of the relationship of love in the Trinity, is precisely the grounding of the supreme revelation in Jesus, the Word of God. It's not merely a forensic thing, or it's not merely a cold revelatory thing. Or it's the expression of the triune God's love. More. More. The marvelous self-disclosure of the Father in the Son turns, in the first place, not in His love for us, but in His love for the Son. You see, we so often think of our salvation in terms of, well, God has loved me so much. That's true. God has loved me, so, loved me so much he gave his son. That's also true. But there is something more primordial. There is something more fundamental. The father has determined that the son will perfectly reflect him and perfectly reveal him out of love for the son. And the son determines first and foremost, to please God out of love for the Father. It's true that he loves us, but why does he do the Father's will? Why does he go to the cross? Why does he obey the commission? Well, it's true that he loves us, but in the first place, it's because he loves his Father. You see, the Son goes to the cross, first and foremost, not because he loves Don Carson, but because he loves his Father. So you find Jesus in an agony in the garden, not praying, Oh Lord, I love them so much, I'll go. You find him praying, not as I will, but as you will. You must see the cross first and foremost as an expression of intra-Trinitarian divine love. I'm not denying for a moment that the Father loves us, that the Son loves us. Don't misunderstand. But first and foremost, the cross itself is a function of God's eternal wisdom worked out in the intra-Trinitarian relationship of love. 
Or this text makes no sense at all. Then, further, 20b, the next stage in the argument. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him either even greater works than these, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. In other words, here we have an exemplification of how the Son does all that the Father does and still greater things than what they have seen so far. It is as if now in the days of Jesus' flesh, the Father gives him things to do, the Father gives him things to do, and Jesus self-consciously obeys him and obeys him and obeys him at each step in his pilgrimage on this, this, this earth. And all that he does, the Father has given him to do, and the Father, the Father dictates as it were, and the Son perfectly obeys his Father at every step. And Jesus is saying, in effect, and you haven't seen anything yet. Lazarus is coming. That's coming up. The sun raising the dead. And that turns out to be an anticipation of the ultimate raising of the dead on the last day. That's the way the argument is going here. You haven't seen anything yet. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. And that argument then is picked up a little farther on. Verse 25, I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come. It's right on the doorstep. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. We'll come to this last raising of the dead in a few moments. And then there is one further step to the argument. The NIV has moreover in verse 22, but in fact it's another four. For the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Huh. This is a further step in the argument. Stradivarius Sr., teaches Stradivarius Jr., all there is about violin making, and then the time comes, as it were, I'm putting this in temporal terms because it's the only categories we've got for them. And then the time comes where he says, all right, from now on, Stradivarius Jr., you do all the glue. I'll cut the wood, and you do the glue. So now you have an assignation of roles, as it were. It's still the Stradivarius violin, of course, but there is a, a differentiation now of, of roles. And what you have now is the insistence that although God the Father alone has the right to raise the dead, and the Son does everything the Father does, so he raises the dead, but now it's going to be the Son in particular who discharges this business of raising the dead and standing in judgment on the last day. It's given to him. The Father judges no one, that is, he backs off, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son and raises them. Now, that doesn't mean the Son now acts so independently that he doesn't do what the Father wants, because, verse 30, I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. So that now the Stradivarius Jr. is doing all the glue, he's still doing the glue according to what Stradivarius Sr. prescribes. Do you see? But there is nevertheless an assignation of roles. Which is why, in the whole Christian way, we still insist that it's the Son who dies on the cross, not the Father. There is some differentiation in terms of what, in fact, is done by the persons of the Godhead. Even though it is unitedly God that plans and executes the entire plan of redemption. Why has God done all of this this way? 
Why in particular, in particular does he entrust all judgment to the Son? Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. God's commitment in love to the Son is so great that what he wants with his whole being is for the Son to receive all of the honor that God himself receives. You've seen families, they're really partly dysfunctional families, where you get the father in such a big ego trip that as the son grows up and becomes a person in his own right, especially if the son is beginning to move into the domain of the father, the father sells insurance, the son begins to sell insurance and do it at least as well as the father. The, fa- the father's a computer expert, the son comes along and boy, he's an expert's expert. The, the father then begins to um, be jealous, protect his own self-identity, want to shove the, the, the young twerp out of the way, he doesn't want the competition. It's terrible when you get a father doing that, isn't it? It's terrible when you get a mother doing that. But instead, a good father delights to see what the son is doing. A good mother delights to see what the daughter is doing. And, and, and so as a result, there, there's nothing that pleases the good parent more than to see that the, the, the children are, are doing well and are being honored as they themselves in their own time and place and circle have been honored. Isn't that correct? That's the analogy that's being drawn here. The father is so committed to the son in love that he insists that all must honor the son as God himself is honored. That's what he insists. And to that end, he judges no one directly and immediately, but mediates it all, as it were, through the son, who then himself, of course, does only what the father wants done. To this end, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Number three. The Son insists that, like the Father, he has... You've got to imagine hyphens here. Life in himself. Life in hyphen in hyphen himself. The Son insists that, like the Father, he has life in himself. This is the only way to account, in my view, for the extraordinarily strange wording of verses 24 to 26. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. Notice that? He is independent. How do you grant someone self-existence? My little gray cells hurt. How do you handle that? Do you see? And, and so people have sometimes thought, well, maybe the second life in himself means something a bit different. Or what, what, what do you do with this sort of thing? So the commentaries go on at great length trying to, trying to figure out what this might mean. But I think that the explanation of the ancient church was correct. I still think it's the best one. I think that what you have to presuppose here is what the fathers used to call an eternal grant. You see, our problem is that when we think of giving something, we think inevitably in terms of our time-based relationships. So, so, so that if I give something to my wife or my son or my daughter, 
then then there is a time when I give it, and before that I have not given it, and after I've given it, it's it's given. And so, so that if you think of the relationships among the persons of the Godhead the same way, then there was a time when the Father had not given this grant to the Son, in which case he did not have life in himself, in which case you've got a contradiction. It just doesn't make any sense, do you see? But maybe this is a way of re-establishing one more time that this is an eternal grant. It establishes the functional relationships within the Godhead. All that the Son does, he does in functional subordination to the Father. The Father tells him what to say, gives him what to do, and so on and so on. And the Son gladly does it out of love. It's why you've got this running tension already from verse 1 of the very first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, God's own fellow, and the Word was God, God's own self. You are coming very close to the mystery now of the Godhead, where the Son is to be worshipped as God, and all are to honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, even while there is some kind of functional subordination going on at this level. I think that you have to say, that you are dealing with this eternal grant. And that brings me to my last point. The Son of God insists he is also the Son of Man. And as such, he is the God-sanctioned judge of all. The Son of God insists he is also the Son of Man, and as such, he is the God-sanctioned judge of all. Verse 27. He has given him authority to judge. He has given the Son authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. That's a strange usage again. Son of Man shows up several times in the Old Testament. About 80 times it occurs in the book of Ezekiel, God addresses um, Ezekiel as son of man. Son of man, say this, son of man, say that, and so on. And, and, and in Hebrew, that's simply the gentilic. That is, it's a way of addressing a human being. You can't say in English because it sounds, it sounds artificial. Um, human being, do this. Human being, do that. Human being, it just sounds artificial. So some modern inclusive language translations um, render it um, mortal. But that's not quite right either, as if God is addressing the human being and saying, oh, mortal one, oh, mortal one. Oh, mortal. No doubt human beings this side of the fall are mortal, but that doesn't quite have it right either, do you, do you, do you see? But, but in Hebrew, the gentilic simply meant human being, so that the, the son of worthlessness is, 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 is a worthless being. The, the son of man, understood in the generic sense, is, is a human being. God is addressing Ezekiel and saying human being. And, and, and so that's one of the, the, the flavors of Son of Man in the Old Testament. Another flavor comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In this vision from Daniel, one like a Son of Man, that is, one who appears to be a human being, it's the Gentilic, one like a human being, appears before God and receives from the Ancient of Days an eternal throne. So it's one of the great messianic passages of the Old Testament and, 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 and is fulfilled, in fact, in the New, again and again and again. So that when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in the New Testament again and again and again, often the allusion is back to, 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 to Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. That is, he is one like the Son of Man of that vision who receives a kingdom from God and, and brings about all of the Davidic promises regarding the kingdom. Do you see? 
Usually, when this expression shows up in Greek, it has the article. And then it is almost certainly, at least partly, titular. That is referring to the Son of Man of David. It, it, it is calling forth those sorts of messianic promises. But here, extraordinarily, it is an arphras. That is, it's without the article. And then in Greek, what that does is focus on the quality of the thing. I think in this place, you rightly should render this in contemporary paraphrastic English. God has given him the authority to judge because he is a human being. The focus is not now on the Danielic son of man theme. It's without the article. It's on the fact that the son of God is also a son of man in the Gentilic sense. He's a human being. Do you see? And thus, when he stands in place as our judge, he stands in place not only as the one who perfectly does the will of his father, as the one who perfectly obeys all that the father gives him to say and do, but one who stands with us, a human being himself who has been tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. If I may put it this way, I'm stretching language, but I don't know how else to get it across. The Father knows us perfectly, judges impartially, and all of his judgments are absolutely just because of his absolute omniscience. He knows not all that has been and all that is and all that will be, but all that might have been under different circumstances, what the philosophers call middle knowledge. But Jesus knows us also by personal experience of being a human being. He's been one with us. There are many, many theological links between John's Gospel and Hebrews. Hebrews is the one that says again and again and again that he is not only one with God, but one with us. He's the perfect mediator between God and human beings because he is God and he is a human being. The perfect mediator. Yet without sin. Tempted as we have been tempted, yet without sin. But in a sense it qualifies him supremely for being a judge even before our critical eyes. And that he has been where we have been, yet without sin. Then the reference then to this final authority brings up this, uh, these final few lines. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. And even this does not presuppose in any way, shape, or form an absolute independence on Jesus' part. No, 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 no. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. On the last day... Jesus will empty the graves. Some wag has said that in John 11, when Jesus cries, Lazarus, come forth. If he had not specified Lazarus, every tomb in Jerusalem would have emptied. It's a nice thought, isn't it? On the last day, Jesus will say, as it were, Hitler, come forth. 
and Hitler will come forth. He will say, Elizabeth Margaret Mabry Carson, come forth. And my mother, who died of Alzheimer's. Who for the last years, the last months of her life, not only couldn't recognize us, but couldn't even give you a squeeze back when you sang old hymns or quoted King James Version at her. Who didn't recognize anything, which is a vegetable. She will come forth. You are talking about the voice of God. And they will live. Now, this is a dense passage. Its argument is tight. It is not easy to follow. Unless you go through it slowly and reflectively and follow the line of thought. But I would be remiss if I did not conclude with at least one or two practical implications. Number one, for putting your Bible together, this Son of God language is peculiarly important, for it is part of a pattern in which Old Testament rites and laws and rituals and so on are taken up as models that anticipate Jesus Christ, predicting him as you will. So we've seen this already for the temple and elusively for the Davidic kingship, for the Lamb of God language, for the priesthood language. But it is also true, in a sense, of Son of God. Israel was God's son. Israel had the task, you see, of reflecting something of God's character among the nations. But that son failed again and again and again. Thus, we're told in Deuteronomy that that son was supposed to learn obedience by the things suffered, learn that Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But that son failed. That son language is very strong in Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. And then along comes Jesus. and At his baptism, we're told that the voice from heaven spoke, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And immediately we're told he was sent by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil where he learns, as Israel failed to learn, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, thus, Jesus is eventually presented as the locus of the true Israel, the true son that does not fail, the true son that really does project perfectly what God is like. Thus, the sonship language of Jesus pulls together many strands from the Bible, to unify the Bible as a whole. Second, this functional way of appealing to the sonship of Jesus may be very, very useful in our efforts to evangelize some of our contemporaries, not least, for example, Muslims, who need to understand what Christians do and do not mean when we speak of Jesus, the Son of God. Because this language can be immensely offensive to them. When I've tried to go through this language with them, they find it much less offensive. That is, they may or may not believe it. That's another matter. But they do not find it intrinsically offensive. And moreover, with respect to modern pagans who are biblically illiterate, who was it was telling me? 
Yeah, I, I, I think it was Mark here was telling me in a philosophy class that he had, uh, he, he, he made allusion to the Trinity in the philosophy class, and the student didn't know what he was talking about, so he made some sort of a tongue-in-cheek remark about, about you know, modern generation watches more MTV than anything, doesn't know anything about the modern culture or something like that, and, and then asked how many in the class didn't know anything about the Trinity, and five out of 17 put up their hands. Well, I would have thought that was, you know, not too bad for Cornell. Um, uh, it's probably higher than some campuses in, in, in the Western world nowadays, where I would have been surprised if you got half than what the word Trinity referred to. But that's a reflection of the fact, too, that, that at the end of the day, if we start re-evangelizing, what you really have to do is get across the basic doctrine of God. Do you see? And that involves understanding the biblical basis for a Trinitarian understanding of God, too. This is part of it. It's not all of it, but it's part of it. Understanding who the Father is, understanding who the Son is. Moreover, I would want to argue that ultimately these things ought to be reflected in our worship, in our reflection, in our adoration, both when we're on our own and corporately. You see, I do not think that ultimately you improve Christian worship by talking endlessly about worship. You improve Christian worship by growing in your understanding of, appreciation of, adoration of, the God who is to be worshipped. That means the more we know of him, admire in him, see in him truly, the more we will be called out in our whole being to respond to him in adoration and obedience. That means we are called upon then to relay these biblical theological foundations again and again and again for ourselves, for our children, for our children's children. For this is the God who is truly to be worshipped. I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, other questions you'd like to come back to me with? If you're planning ahead, read John 6 tomorrow. John 6. Yes. Uh, only God. That is, just, I would want to argue on biblical grounds that before his coming into the world, he was something, he, he, he always was God. He became something that he was not. That is, his, his, his becoming a human being was bound up with a particular moment in our space-time history. I don't see how else the peculiarity the historical peculiarity, what some have called the scandal of historical particularity, can be accommodated. He did not enter the world as universal human. He entered the world as one particular first century Jewish boy. The scandal of historical particularity. Uh, angel of the Lord language is is peculiar. That is to say, both the Hebrew and the Greek angelos for, for angel have a wide range of meaning. It's the whole expression, the angel of the Lord. When that language is used in the Old Testament, I would want to argue that it, it frequently portrays the person as somehow simultaneously Yahweh and some how simultaneously a presentation of one who is manifesting himself in this 
space-time continuum. Uh, I, I acknowledge that it's difficult. In fact, I had a, a, a student who just submitted a doctoral dissertation just on the Angel of the Lord passages in the Old Testament. Very interesting. And their background for New Testament Christology. Um, a very rich and thoughtful, very careful, careful study. You're trying to stick with the evidence, not go beyond it, and, and so on. But however, even if you understand those to be pre-Jesus manifestations of God in human or quasi-human form, and so on. There is no way that you can legitimately understand those to be fulfillment of the Son of David line of human prophecy. I mean, the first of them occur before, before, before there is a David. To, to say that God chooses, himself, chooses to come down and manifest himself in human form in someone who is called then angel of the Lord is one thing. To say that this is functionally the same God-man self-identity as the one who is born as Mary's son is something to say, is to say a little more. To say that it's the same I, the same God, is one thing. To say that it's the same human being is, it seems to me, to say something too much. What it does is reduce the particularity of being a son of David in David's line. Which is as important as anything in, in, in Scripture. That Davidic ancestry is just so important. Sir. There was a series done on the Discovery Channel a few years ago where, where there were, I don't know, nine or ten of us. Two of us were believers. And, but on the other hand, that thing has done a lot of good because, because both the other chap and myself were given fair scope in the whole thing. And so, as a result, the gospel did not look at least just like a sort of minority thing. And on that, I was on set for two days for that one. And I talked, I think, to all 30 or so people on the crew. I didn't find a single person who knew that the Bible had two testaments. Except one young woman who was the interviewer. And she assured me that she now knew quite a lot about the Bible. She'd been studying it now for six weeks so she could ask me questions. Boy, was I impressed. And so you start dealing with people in the media and you realize, just, I mean, that, that too is a whole segment of society that needs to be evangelized. I mean, it, and it, 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 it just doesn't have a clue. One of the nicest things you can do in that sort of context is be nice. They expect conservatives to be rude to them. <laughs> so I go out of my way to be nice to all the media people I can possibly find, even if, if I think that their arguments are really bad. Pardon? Oh, I don't remember. I've done half a dozen of them. I don't even know what that one was called. Somebody told me the other one, NPH in California, do another series coming up, and I, I, I never watch them. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I get phone calls and emails. Well, I saw you on Larry King Live. I never watched Larry King Live. So what did I say? I, we don't even have cable. And I, <laughs> life's too short. And, and it's par partly when my kids were growing up, I didn't watch it, want to watch much TV, you know. So you restrict yourself to rabbit ears, and boy, that really does reduce things a little bit. And, and uh, now with the kids gone, we'll probably get cable in some day. But I, I, I rarely watch the stuff. I, so, I mean, I, I really don't know what, what I said. <laughs> you know, uh, I'll tell you the funniest one. If I'm, if I'm allowed one story, this, uh, I, I, got, I got phoned by, by one of the producers for CNN ah, five, four or five years ago. Um, when, when, when the Jesus Seminar, the first book came out, The Five Gospels, and they wanted me to go head-to-head -head with Bob Funk, 
for for half an hour on a on a CNN thing. And it, it was typical the way CNN does it, you know, talking head in Chicago where I am, talking head in California where he was, and the producers off in Atlanta. And I, I, I really don't like these things. It's just that I know that somebody's got to do them or else, or else if you remain silent all your life, it, it always seems as if there are no conservatives to stand up, you know. So I had been following the Jesus Seminar stuff and some of the literature, but I hadn't even read this latest book yet. So I went and got it and studied it. And, and we had uh, two days. And, and then what you have to remember for TV is that it's a particular medium so that you, 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 you've you got to reduce what you want to say into one-liners. So so I, I, by this time I had read it and formulated my responses. And then I was writing one-liners that I could memorize so that I could, you know, use them on TV. And a few hours before we were supposed to go, this producer phoned me again and said, um, Don, the show's off. It's canceled. Okay, fair enough. Uh, why? Bob Funk doesn't want to go up against you. Well, see, he and I had clashed before. And, uh, and uh, I said, oh, uh, why is that? He says he doesn't, want to be, uh, he doesn't want to be paired on national TV with a fundamentalist. I said, oh, whom, uh, with whom does he want to be paired? He says he wants Bishop Spong. <laughs> and fortunately, this, this, this producer, a young woman, she was clearly sharp enough that she knew that that would just be a cheerleading section. You know, and from a TV producer's point of view, I mean, it wasn't a question of the rightness or wrongness of anything. The question is, what makes good TV? And what makes good TV is clash. So she wanted somebody who's going to get in an argument with Bob Hunt, you know. And um, and so she said, she listened to him. She talked back and forth. She said, look, it's Carson or nobody. He said, all right, it's nobody. Slammed it down. And that was the end of that, the program. But you see, from a gospel point of view, that was probably a great contribution I made right there. <laughs> Because, you see, regardless of who had won or lost, he still would have sold 10,000 more copies if, if he had been on national TV. I mean, that's, that's the way the medium works. It's not who wins or loses. It's where you get exposure. Pardon? Spong? Funk? Robert Funk? Robert Funk is the chair of the Jesus Seminar. And the Jesus Seminar has been producing all kinds of books in the last few years and manipulating the media... They're deeply, deeply committed to philosophical naturalism. Um, they hold, for example, in all of, the, all of the Gospel of Mark, for example, there's only one verse that has a high probability of being authentic Jesus. And a few others that have some probability, and the rest, no way, Jose. You know, and, and um, I mean, they're extreme left. The vast majority of liberals think they're extremely kooky. But they've been collecting um, a lot of press, and every time they come up with a book, they get national coverage and so on. Uh, they're at the extreme left end of things, and, um, and, and that, that was that was that was that was fun. And Bishop Spong, you know, surely, no? Bishop Spong is an Episcopalian bishop who is not only a naturalist, but he's very very charismatic, small C sense, excellent in the media, knows how to talk. Um, he, he he believes in the relativity of all truth, um, all, all the language about incarnation and all of that is all metaphorical. Um, been a very ardent, ardent, ardent uh, defender of homosexual marriage. Uh, one, one of the leaders of the extreme left in the Episcopalian Church. Um, or as one person put it, um, there once was a bishop called Spong whose views were exceedingly strong. The literal meaning is crass and demeaning, he said, but was literally wrong. <laughs> um, um, what, what can I say? You know, Bishop Spong to Bob Funk would have been a cheerleader. That, that, that's, all, that's all. And so this was a way of breaking this down. Yeah.
Well, it's a very shrewd question. Um, I think that the problem is compounded by two additional factors. Some of the people who do enter the life of the mind then use that life of the mind entirely within a kind of confessional um, a frame of reference, a, a Christian school, Christian seminary, a Christian writing, nice Christians for nice Christians, and, and thus don't engage very well. So nowadays there are far more you know, first-class PhDs out there um, with confessional base, but many of them have withdrawn from the larger world. Uh, that's part of the problem. Another part of the problem is that quite a few who do engage don't know enough about the Bible and theology going in, don't keep reading, and as a result actually end up capsizing. And, and, and there, the problem is, I think, that what, what you sometimes get is people who, who do catch a vision from people like you and from others, and then go on and do a PhD, whether it's in philosophy or cultural anthropology or whatever, but still only have not much more than a Sunday school grasp of the Bible and of theology, and thus eventually domesticate their biblical theological convictions under the, 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 the sheer weight of learning from their own discipline. Uh, to, to my mind, part of the demand is for people who will simultaneously get at least a master's degree, maybe a little more, in Bible and theology and this sort of thing, and be grounded in that great heritage of the church, as well as doing an advanced degree in, 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 in their own discipline, or, or postdoc in their own disciplines, so that they've got a frame of reference, a worldview out of which to work a lot of this stuff out. Or if they're not going to do that, then they've got to be somebody like you, who will read and read and read and read beyond their own discipline and take in things and, and, and think Christianly and holistically beyond the confines of their own discipline. And all of that requires work, it requires time, it requires sacrifice. Um, but that is what we urgently need. I, I agree with that. I think we're doing a little better at it now than uh, 30 years ago, but there is a huge gap. There is a huge gap. Uh, I don't have formulaic answers. I think that there are various foundations, like the Institute for Advanced Christian Studies, that gives scholarships and so on along these lines and tries to do more. Um, there are some things coming, but... In, in Britain, there's the Tyndale Fellowship, and uh, Rutherford House in Scotland, and, and uh, in Oxford, there's the Whitfield Fraternal. There are things like this that are trying to make those sorts of connections, but there is a great deal more that needs to be done. I, I don't have formulaic answers. Yes? Yes. Um, uh, well, let me say a couple of things. I mean, certainly the Bible does speak of some being beaten with more stripes and some with fewer stripes in Luke's Gospel. And in Matthew uh, chapter 11, verses 20 to 24, for example, uh, <clears throat> you have unambiguous language that declares some people more guilty and less guilty based on what they know. So it'll be worse, for example, for Capernaum and Bethsaida who heard Jesus preach and saw his miracles, than for two cities up the coast, Tyre and Sidon, or even for Sodom and Gomorrah, proverbial for wickedness in ancient history, because they did not have as much light. So in other words, God's justice is based not only on his perfect knowledge, but even on his knowledge of what might have been under different circumstances. Jesus goes so far as to say, for if they had heard these things, they would have repented long ago. Now, that doesn't mean that therefore they're saved in the last day. It clearly doesn't, because people are still judged for their sin. But on the other hand, the justice of God on the last day will be not only clean, but be seen to be clean. It will not only be just, but be seen to be just, and every mouth stopped. That's part of it, too. As for the rewards, um, 
there have been two or three things that have helped, helped me in this respect. One of the best illustrations I've uh, heard in this regard I, was from C.S. Lewis. I think it was in his book, The Four Loves. But I won't swear to the source. I'd have to look it up again. Um, he pictures two young men. Uh, one goes off to the red light district in town, pays his money, and has his woman. He has his reward. Another falls in love with a young woman and woos her, wins the confidence of the family, treats her with honor and respect, builds a relationship, eventually um, courts her, asks her hand in marriage, asks the father. There's a wonderful wedding. He has his reward. What's the difference, he asks. They both have the reward. Lewis answers, in the first case, the reward is so incommensurate with the payment that the whole transaction is obscene. In the second case, the reward is the consummation of a relationship. Isn't that glorious? I like it. And then you see, Romans can go further and say that even our war, our rewards are according to grace. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not saying that it's all easy or anything like that. But on, on the last day, um, there are certain immutables. God will be just and be seen to be just. Every excuse will be stripped away. There will be degrees of felicity in heaven and degrees of punishment in hell. And every place where there is forgiveness of sin and eternal life and, and um, glory before the Father and all the rest, in every case, in every case, in every degree, it will be seen to be the fruit of grace. Everywhere. And men and women are declared in this life. That's what justification means. They are declared just because of the sacrifice of Christ. That's why justification language in Paul is eschatological language brought back in time. It's the language of the last day. I declare this person just. Not guilty. Acquitted. Just before me. But it's brought back in time because another died in my place. And so, you have to understand the language of the last day to work out within the matrix of what justification means now, too. Does that scratch where you itch? Last question. Yes, well, thank you for the question. The question is, um, why would God create something like the Trinity or the Son so that... Uh, there was apparently an expression of a need in God. Why, why did God have to do it this way in the first place? Did he have some kind of need that would bring this sort of thing about? Is that... Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, well, in the first place, I would want to say that God did not create the sun. Um, that, that is to say, uh, if I've given that impression, I, 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 I'm sorry, but I, I really did not mean to. That is... I. Since the Son has all the attributes of God, in the beginning was God, in the beginning was the Word. There was no beginning to the Word. Whatever the beginning, the Word always also was, as God already was. Do you see? So, it's not a question of God deciding, 
Ooh, I think I need a trinity. Rather, the idea is that God is the trinity. You see, that that really is a very important understanding. So so that the question, therefore, is not, why did God do this? If there's a why question at all, and I'm not sure you can answer it, it is, why is God this way? And, And then you cannot give an answer to that which is properly basic, like God himself, in terms of why, quite. You can rather draw some inferences about what this produces. What, what, what kind of God are we to think about if this is the way God is? And I would say that one of the great glories, one of the great values of thinking about God this way, of what the Bible says God is really like from all eternity, one of the great things about the whole thing is that it means something concrete to say that God is love. Supposing God were not only one, but solitary in eternity past. What would it mean to say that that God is love? I don't have a clue. Maybe narcissistic. See, But if in fact God is one, but complex, Trinitarian, then in eternity past the Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. And I would extrapolate that likewise for the Spirit. So that at no point was there not other for the Father to love within the oneness of the Godhead. Now, any other way of putting it, it seems to me, either ultimately reduces the oneness of God. You reject monotheism. Or... It, it reduces the notion of love to narcissism or some generalized sort of compassionate sentimentality, but not love. But in eternity past, the Father loved the Son and the Son loved the Father. I, I think that's one of the great things. I think it's one of the things, for example, that separates the best of Christianity from the best of Islam. And then to think through from a passage like this, what this means for understanding that even the whole plan of redemption is itself a function of the intra-Trinitarian love that makes up the very Godhead. He's saying something very profound. And then you come to the prayer of Jesus in John 17. It's a passage we haven't had time to look at. But he wants then Christians to begin to know the oneness that he and the Father enjoy. Thus, the Godhead becomes something, ultimately, of the expectation of what the church should be like, what the church will, in some measure, be like on the last day when there is no more evil, when there is perfect consummation. There will be a a kind of oneness that will be a oneness, genuinely, of transparent, forever requited love. And in some measure, God help us failingly again and again and again, but in some measure, The church is an outpost in time now of that eschatological community whereby we should be pointing all the time to what we will one day be. Now, I know the church has got all kinds of sins and false sins divided and all the rest. But nevertheless, in society, the church is still the most amazingly receptive, open organization, which is one of the reasons why any, any decent local church will always collect a certain high percentage of misfits and awkward people and 
the twits and so on and so on, precisely because it's about the only society in all of the larger culture that will accept these people and not just run them out of town. You, you, you see, if you have a high percentage of really awkward people in your local church, take it as a badge of honor. Do, 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 see. That's what the church does. It's an anticipation of the eschatological community. It's a reflection of God Almighty. So you see, this, th- th- there's cash value in 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 in, uh, in 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 the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. It's, it's not one of those obscure things that theologians worry about, like how many knee, uh, angels can dance on the head of a pin or something. I mean, there's cash value in how we think about God and redemption and church and eschatology and where we are and who we are and what we do and why we do it and so on. See, it's bound up with all of of, of what we are. Now it's in with that frame, within that framework, then that as we increase our knowledge of the doctrine of God we increase likewise our worship.